Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Welcome to Hey, great shot. This is the Great Shot Podcast, a Crack Rackets and Tennis Channel Podcast Network production. My name is Alex Gruskin. On today's show, we have our final episode of our countdown of our top 10 Division I men's and women's college tennis teams entering the 2023 college tennis season. What does that mean for all of you tennis fans? Simply put, it means we have inched closer and closer to the start of the college tennis season, and now dual match play is right around the corner, of course. Before we get there, we have just one thing left to do, and that's name our number one preseason men's team entering this 2023 college tennis season. Of course, if I'm going to do that, if it's going to be a grand finale of what has been a 20-episode long series, we're going to bring out the big guns here on today's show. And joining me, as he always has, through each of these top 10 men's preview countdown episodes is a man you know best as the forefather of the college tennis ranks formula predictions never far from the listed UTR one of the many dames to root for the Liberty Flames and as of late the lean mean vegan machine it's our dear friend Chris Halioris Chris hey great shot welcome back to the show 10 episodes up 10 episodes down we finally made it you excited for the start of another college tennis year Oh, definitely excited. Just like I said, uh, you know, in the in the last one, I mean, great to see Colin already see already seeing results uh, coming in today, you know, from things getting going. So, yeah, absolutely excited to see all these teams, both on the men's and women's side, get going uh, It's super, super fun time. Hidden duels here, invitationals there, so much fantastic tennis, again, right around the corner for all of us college tennis fans, and of course, before we get there again, we got one thing left to do, and again, it's a grand finale, we're pulling out all the stops here on today's show, we're going three wide, and it's not quite the old school crack rackets, holy trinity, but certainly we are ecstatic to have this guest joining us here on today's show, of course, you know him best as a man who helped co-pilot our top 10 women's countdown throughout the course of this offseason. He's my co-host of our women's episodes of The Deciding Point, the founder of the No Ad, No Problem blog and podcast, a recent author for our website, crackrackets.com, talking about the future of Ivy League tennis, and of course, above all else, the returning champion. Above all returning champions, it's our dear friend, John J. Parsons. Jay, hey, Great shot. Welcome on to our men's series, making your debut just before we hit the finish line. I talked to you yesterday, so I know you're excited, my friend. How are you doing today, though? I'm good. Happy to be on here for the men. Look, it's not the OG Holy Trinity. I'm not Nicholas Gruskin either. You guys will just have to settle. But I figured if you bring on Nick, uh, I can make an appearance here for the grand finale talking about number one Virginia. 
Now, certainly UVA feels like a school you have had some history with, to say the least, and we've talked about that on various podcasts over the years. But yeah, again, we're talking about the defending national champion. I've yet to predict a 2023 national champion. There are still some things we have to take care of. I will also say, I told this to Jay yesterday, told this to Chris yesterday as well. At the end of today's show, I'm going to offer each of them the opportunity to reset their board of eight predictions for the quarterfinals onward of this NCAA tournament. We all say a lot of things over the course of these 10 episodes, so I wanted to give each of these guys the opportunity to, I guess, compile their list of takes and offer them once more to all of you Cracked Rackets listeners. But again, our agenda, as always, is to break down our preseason number one men's team, the University of Virginia, recap their 2022, look at who they bring back, how we expect them to fare throughout the course of this 2023 season. Needless to say, it's going to be a jam-packed show for all of you listeners. That said, before we get to the who's, got a little bit of business to take care of here on this show. I want to talk about some late-breaking news. We've got two late-breaking topics to discuss before we get to the Cavaliers. And the place we have to start is the announcement from the ITA that they will be adopting the ITF World Tennis number moving forward. That World Tennis number being used by the ITF, being used by the USDA, and will now be used by the ITA as well. And of course, the easiest comparison I can make for the World Tennis number is going to be a metric and a company that we know well here at Cracked Rackets, college tennis fans will know well, and that, of course, is UTR and universal tennis. And certainly over the course of these 10 preview podcasts on the men's and women's side, you've heard myself, Jay, Chris, refer to the universal tennis ratings of so many different uh, members of college tennis, how we, you know, Jay always says that threshold when you're over an 11 on the women's side, you're a really special player. Obviously, on the men's side, 13, 13 and a half is where you see that number. If you're a 14 on the men's side, we know you are the realist of the real deals. I mean, again, I've asked Jay, I've asked Chris, give me what their combined UTRs of these team are when you add their top six players and we've compared them to one another. Universal tennis has to some extent, become very synonymous with what you see and how we make comparisons in the college tennis world. And, you know, again, thus to see this information, that world tennis number would be the new operating mode for the ITA moving forward, that they're going to try and find a way to incorporate their data with all the pro circuit data, all of the junior circuit data that this world tennis number is intended to provide moving forward. I mean, certainly, again, it was an announcement that got the attention of all of us in the college tennis world. And, you know, certainly, I want to read the quote from Tim Russell here that was offered in the press release on this announcement. Quote, the international tennis ecosystem and the landscape of American college athletics are both evolving and continuing to empower college tennis coaches at all levels to deliver vibrant tennis programs that are vital to their college communities and transformational for their student athletes. Our association continues to strengthen national and international partnerships. These include integrated technology platforms and tools such as the World Tennis Number that provide benefit to our members and enhanced tennis as one of the most vibrant college sports. 
The press release goes on to explain the ITF World Tennis number, which is a scale of 40 to 1, 40 being a beginning player, 1 being an elite professional. They try to scale for everyone, regardless of age, gender, or ability. Chris, you're our data expert, so I want to turn to you first, of course, for what it's worth. Jay had a fantastic thread of tweets already released on his Twitter, offering his initial reaction to this announcement. I want to get to them in a second, but Chris... Look, from a numbers perspective, UTR, you know, power sixes, those are probably the most e- efficient to the wrong word, but maybe the most available data we have to try and do any sort of analytic comparison between teams. It's going to be an adjustment, but World Tennis Number still offers that, does it not? Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see since I've seen zero of Jay's tweets, how uh, <laughs> how closely or how far I come from echoing his sentiments. So, yeah, lots of thoughts here. I mean, look, one, I'm in for I'm in for anything that grows the game, right? I, I and and I don't think anyone should have a monopoly on anything. So the fact that we have two different organizations offering up rating systems is fine with me. We back in the the old college football days, we had the RPI and like four other computer ranking systems, and they took an average of all of them together to be part of the poll. I'm, I'm okay with that. So as long as everybody embraces the fact that we're okay with having multiple people that do rankings. And yes, I understand the ITA. I know they're a nonprofit, but it's, it's a business. They're going to establish strategic partnerships and relationships with people. And if that happens to be, you know, it's not going to be both. If it's one over the other, so be it. When I, as long as it doesn't lead to, oh, we're we're partnering with WTN, which means we're now going to completely preclude UTR from doing anything with us. They can't have our data. They can't do it. I, I would have a problem with that. Share the data. They've got Bruce Washoot there. He was a big tennis open data standards guy. One of the guys that that was very a big proponent of getting that going, which is a way of sharing tennis results, tournament results, etc. Uh, in an open standard way for people to get at. As long as we keep things open like that, I'm I'm totally fine with it. And yeah, the purpose is, as you said, it's the same. It's to put a scale, a metric, a rating to a player that regardless of age, gender, you know, no matter what, you can look at somebody, they go from 40 to one. So you look at a 10 and go, yeah, 10 plays a 10 should be a competitive match. Don't care who they are, where they're from or what they're doing. And as long as that's, you know, as long as we're kind of preserving the integrity there, uh, I mean, I'm generally okay with it. Jay? Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, right, whether you have a rating system that goes from 1 to 16 and 16 is good or 1 to 40 and 1 is good, it doesn't really matter, right? And if you have multiple rating systems, it's not really about the rating at hand here, right? The question is, does this mean that results from the ITA, the USTA, the ITF, feed into universal tennis. I think there is an open question right now about what that looks like moving forward. If it means that certain results are excluded from universal tennis, then it pretty clearly erodes the underlying value of UTR, which I would say, yes, the rating is one component of it, but ultimately a lot of the features that they have built have been bespoke to college tennis. A lot of what we were talking about, power six UTR, comparing teams line by line, comparing against conferences, that's nowhere close to being something that the world, uh, the WTN has. And ultimately, if 
no data is passed through the universal tennis, this kind of upends a lot of the coaches and college tennis fans, their day-to-day workflow, right, of how they stay informed about results that are happening across the world. So I, I agree in the immediate that you would be correct there, Jay, but it's not as though the features that have been built by universal tennis are unobtainable for world tennis number. And certainly, again, there will be a transition making those resources available, but there's no reason you can't do a Power 6 WTN. There's no reason that feature can't exist. Now, again, what that scale looks like, adjusting to that scale will take a second. But for me, what I, what I view this as, Jay, and you're shaking your head, I promise we're going back to you immediately after this. The big picture, of course, and I know there's an operating meeting coming in, a committee meeting, I think next week, where we're going to hear whether the NCAA tournament will be moved the individuals to the fall or not, whether the NCAA committees are going to be adopting that proposal. The idea, I think, of the world tennis number and partnerships with the ITF, the USTA continuing to grow for the ITA is also in preparation of, well, what's the most accurate ranking system we can have for these individuals if we try to move the individual tournament? And is a world tennis number that is incorporating pro circuit results, that is incorporating all of these college results as well, can we make that to the point where it is most accurate, where all of these players' results are being inputted into this single feature, and now we can have a more accurate, if not, make everyone at least slightly more comfortable with what that selection process looks like. You know, again, it, it's a it's, it's a part of the growing partnership, the USDA, which is a massive partner of the ITAs. They've adopted World Tennis Number. The idea of the ITA partnering with the ITF, again, trying to create some sort of uniformity amongst all levels of tennis. That's certainly an, an aspiration worth aspiring to. I understand the decision, Jay. I agree. I think there's going to be a time of transition, but okay, like I give it a year. Like I, there's no reason they can't figure out how to have all these features, Jay, in the next year. Well, I'm first of all, I'm not in a position to judge the validity of the rating system between World uh, sure, WTN yeah. and UTR. Like in spirit, they're trying to accomplish the same thing, right? What the reason why I was shaking my head when you were talking about building these features is. I have doubts that the incentives would be there for the WTN to build those features, right? And you look at UTR and where they have made um, significant inroads over the past years have been at the, you know, the the junior community level, right? And organizing adult level play, really competing with sort of like USTA league events, kind of finding players in your area. And college tennis is, you know, tied so closely to that community tennis where I think UTR has been more impactful than let's say at the ATP or WTA level. When you look at the WTN, you look at the ITF, they're going to have a long list of priorities that include pro tennis, that include elite international junior tennis that will be above and beyond what, you know, where college tennis falls on that stack rank. And they have a ways to go. I mean, you look on that website right now, many of the top collegiate players aren't even to be found on the WTN website. So they're not even in a place to start building out parity features that the UTR has. They got a little ways to go, and I don't think the incentives are going to be there. Chris? Yeah, I mean, a couple things. I, I I agree with Jay, but again, my my biggest fear is I don't, you know, the cynic in me would say, not not driven by the ITA, but more driven by WTN, right, that, that they want to take over, so they're going to try to push 
uh, UTR out where I'm in favor of having all parties involved providing their services. And, uh, you know, and yes, the WTNs, you know, now got strategic partnerships with the USTA, the ITF, and and I, I don't want to see them just try to sort of strong arm it, it into the case where we are in the situation where we have a monopoly and, and only one man lives. Yep. Um, I, I think I do agree with Jay that it's, I don't know, you know, the ITA is not like cash flush, right? <laughs> I mean, getting the WTN to do things for them is not going to be a lot easier than trying to get things done that they've done in their changes in platforms for ranking systems, et cetera. They don't have a budget where they can just go and say, yeah, we're just going to go drop a couple million and contract these guys to go build something for us. That that money is just not running around. And, and, you know, and the coaches on the operating committee, if you ask them, hey, would you be in favor of spending a couple million dollars to go? They'd probably say, no, we have better places. We want to spend our money. So a lot of what they need to get done, they've got to rely on the good graces of WTN saying, yeah, you know what, we'll throw that in our backlog and, and we're going to, we're going to develop some of those features for you. It's not going to cost you anything, but it'll help the, the college tennis fans, the coaches, the people, prospective players looking into it. I, I don't know. We'll, we'll see how likely that is to happen. The other thing that I will say is one that something you brought up, Alex, is the adoption and the use of it. Yes. The ITA has used UTR in the past for, additional info say in seeding some tournaments or whatnot but i also know firsthand from talking to folks that have been in the room at ncaa selection committee time that a taboo subject at that point was utr because that included results that did not include college matches and from the ncaa's perspective you were to look at what happened during the college season what were your ncaa results and when we go to choose teams making the tournament and how to seed them we're looking at what happened in college not what these guys did on pro tour or gals did on the pro tour and 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 the like so i think a little clarity i'm fine with using it and i think it should be used when you come to things like seeding individual tournaments i'm totally okay whether that metric be a utr or a wtn using that as you know, maybe not the only, but a big aspect of the seeding criteria, that's fine by me. But I, I would like to see clarity and transparency into, hey, we're going to use it here and here, but we're not going to use it in these other places, just so we know, uh, you know, what when it's a lot, when it's okay and when it's not, which criteria use it and which don't. But, uh, but yeah, I, I mean, I, I echo Jay's concerns. Yeah, I, I think that's very fair. Um, I, again, acknowledge both of those points. I would say from the ITA's perspective, I think their idea is that those features available on the Universal Tennis website would not be featured on the World Tennis Number website, but would be features uniquely offered to college tennis fans, college tennis followers. And I think the highest aspiration for the ITA is to put features like that on the We Are College Tennis website and really lock that in as the one-stop shop for all things happening in college tennis. Now, again, uh, we said it when we had him on the show last time. I've reserved the right to bring Tim Russell back on the show to discuss this and discuss the implications of this decision as well, how this impacts any sort of partnership where this leaves the ITA and Universal Tennis moving forward because you're both right in, on the sentiment that – Look, Universal Tennis over the last five years, there's been a lot of equity put into college tennis. And certainly, again, it has become a staple of the way we present our coverage 
you know, that said, Chris, you talk about that mindset. I think that's actually the most fascinating thing. If the analytics were taboo in those discussions moving forward by creating this formal partnership, by trying to incorporate this multifaceted, we're, we're incorporating junior results with college results, with pro results, and trying to make this one legitimate universal number, I think the idea is to legitimize the data somewhat and to have that stigma associated with non-college results factoring into a college decision or a college seating. I think the, the hope is that that goes away and that we can use the ITF world number. Now, again, I wish you listeners could see the face Jay has made at me just about whenever I've spoken today, probably because I showed up a little bit late due to an unintentional nap. So apologies to both Jay and Chris. Uh, but that, That's Jay, code, folks, but we're not going to tell you what it's code for. No, I wish it was code for something. Literally an unintentional map, a nap. I'm not lying my way out of this. Um, Jay, I'll give the final word to you. I mean, the final word is that we have to wait and see, right? Sure. Because really the only point I think Chris and I are are saying here is ultimately if this means that Universal Tennis does no longer have access to certain results, then that feels really problematic, right? If all this is is the ITA saying, hey, we recognize there are multiple rating systems, we are aligning ourselves with the WTN, by all means, have at it. Right. So I think we still need to hear more um, on what the implications are for Universal Tennis in particular. All right. Very well said. Well, again, with that in mind, the ITA announcing that decision to switch to the ITF World Tennis number in uh, in collaboration in their partnership alongside of the USTA and the ITF. You can read more in the ITA press release. And again, I promise you listeners, we're going to have Tim Russell on this show before the serious start of the season to address all these sorts of new developments, as I think there might be some other fun stuff coming in the pipeline as well. With that said, we also got some news from the ITA via their top 10 preseason ratings. And look, we talked about it on the women's side. Jay and I were able to identify, or I should say we had exactly the same top 10 as the ITA did in the preseason poll. Now, of course, ours was adjusted after we got that Texas A&M news. The ITA coaches had a little bit more time to vote still. 10 out of 10 on the top 10 teams felt right, considering Jay and I said at the start of our preseason preview, there were about 11 teams to choose from. On the men's side, I thought we did pretty well also. You look overall at this ITA preseason top 25, and again, at this point, it's a coaches poll with 12 coaches all voting to determine the top 25. We got 9 out of 10 correctly. The biggest difference between us, obviously, we had Stanford. These coaches put South Carolina in the number 10 spot. The coaches a little lower on Texas, a little higher on Kentucky and TCU than we were. That said, top two looks exactly the same. We had Ohio State too. They had Ohio State too. We had Virginia at number one. They had Virginia at number one. Now, again, we're not going to break down every decision. Look at all 25 teams who got snubbed because we've got all year to do exactly that as it relates to top 25 polls. But Jay, this time I'm going to start with you directionally, much like yesterday. Any trends, any specific things stand out as you look at this preseason top 25? Not particularly. You know, I mean, you have Baylor, Florida, and Wake Forest leaving the top 10, everyone else sort of moving up basically three spots. Um, Nothing really stood out for me. I think I mentioned this on the women's show. I think these coaches really like to make these teams prove it uh, on the court. And so you don't see a ton of deviation um, from uh, from how they finished in 2022. Um, 
And I think the teams that they were lower on are, are teams that we clearly didn't have in the top 10. So I think directionally, this is spot on. Yeah, I mean, looking at the big trends again, which conferences are the biggest winners? I think certainly when you look at the SEC, Kentucky, four, Tennessee, six, Georgia, seven. You look at the future with Texas in that top 10 as well. That's a potential another juggernaut heading to the SEC shortly. South Carolina at the number 10 spot. Florida at 13. You know, again, um, Auburn at 24, Texas A&M 23. Lots of SEC options as always. I thought the ACC, but things shook out pretty well for them, particularly when you look Duke at tied for 20, NC State 19, North Carolina 18, Wake at 14, a team we have spent no time talking about here in this offseason. Then, of course, UVA all the way up at that number one spot. They've got some depth. They've got some options to beat up on one another. You feel like to keep top 16 rankings in the fold in that conference. I mean, again, though, Chris, I don't see anything particularly shocking. This feel, you know, again, South Carolina over Stanford, fine, like, I don't full-throatedly disagree with that decision by the coaches. Virginia has a unanimous 12 out of 12 first-place votes. Feels like they earned that. Any gripes on your end, Chris? I, I mean, I don't know that I'd call them gripes. I mean, I think the two biggest things that stood out to me were, were yeah, either the coaches don't like Goldstein or <laughs> they know a lot more about Basavaretti's wrist than, than we do at this point in time uh, because 12 – for a fully healthy Stanford team is way underrated. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, you, we could then make the same argument that, well, yeah, but they they underperform every year. And and they have for the past several, uh, you know, we, we get really high on them and then things happen and, and, it, and it doesn't work out, wh- whatever. But I think that's a, that's a little underrated, uh, if you will. Not that I would necessarily want to knock any of the teams. I, I have no problem with the teams that are in the top 10. I just think 12 is too low for Stanford. The other one that jumped out at me really was the fact that after losing all six starters and the and the kind of big lineup that we see coming in for Florida State this year, that Florida's actually still ranked in front of Florida State. Sort of the in-state preseason rivalry already getting going, and we know those guys are going to play. So, so that that to me is very intriguing. Uh, I mean, I I think the late addition for Florida after the announcement that that Abdul was leaving, but they bring in the two kids from Poland, one of them, who's the top UTR on the team, uh, probably lends some credence to why they got so much respect uh, in the coaches poll. But again, look, this coaches poll is 12 coaches. This is sort of like getting elected class president in high school, right? It's not necessarily all about how good you are. There's a lot of, of popularity contests going on too. We all know it's not always exact. It's anybody's guess as good as anyone else's. But yeah, it. I mean, it's a preseason poll. But the shame of it is for some people that think they get snubbed, these preseason rankings do matter. Where you start the season plays into the formula when the computer rankings come out. And it does matter. If you start 10 SEC schools in the top 25, there are going to be a lot more SEC schools high come the end of the year simply because of it. And that's why you see some of the mid-major schools really want to get their say and for like, hey, we need to get ranked well preseason because it makes a difference come the end of the year. And yeah. and we have a fair, you know, you've got, uh, you know, several schools in there like your Pepperdines, like your Middle Tennessees, like your Ivy League schools, right, that are in there. That's good for them too. But yeah, directionally, I don't have – 
honestly, I don't have any issues with any of it. Those were just kind of the two biggest things that jumped out at me was Stanford felt low and the Florida, Florida State thing was intriguing to say the least. No, I mean, I think that is completely fair. And I would point out, as we did yesterday, boy, the Big Ten. I mean, Big Ten got two top 25 teams on the women's side, only two top 25 teams on the men's side. Now, the difference for the men is one of them's number two, Ohio State, and number five, Michigan. So they have some blue chip horses, the rest of the conference does, to tie their fates to. But like Northwestern got votes. They just missed the top 25. Illinois didn't even get a top 25 vote here in these preseason rankings. Meanwhile, you look, you know, it's a six-school Big 12, right? And you see uh, Texas up on this list. You see Baylor up on this list. You see TCU up on this list. You know, Oklahoma received votes to be a top 25 team. I think that's a very much a prove it, but they're going to get in there pretty quickly. And it's just like... It's a different ballgame, uh, I suppose, right now for these Big Ten schools. They really got to earn back that equity um, earn back to, I suppose, moving forward if they want to be included in these preseason conversations. But, again, any final thoughts, Jay? Are you ready to hit number one UVA? Yeah, let's do it. All right, let's get into then our 2023 final preview, I should say, of this 2023 offseason. That is a conversation with the unanimously ranked number one in the ITA preseason poll. And I don't remember if they were unanimous or not in our Cracked Rackets poll. But look, you win the national championship, you bring back the majority of the core. It's hard to have UVA anywhere else but number one to start this 2023 college tennis season. And I mean, it was a tale of two years for this University of Virginia team last season. Of course, UVA ultimately ends the year 28-5. and They, of course, go on to win the national championship. But let's be abundantly clear. This UVA team was 5-5 five and five at one point in their season. 5-5. Five and five. And look, they were five, I don't want to say impressive losses, but explainable losses. You lose at Ohio State, at Baylor, at TCU, versus the eventual national indoor champs TCU at the national indoors, versus a Florida team that was going to just beat just about anyone that was across the net from them following their first-round loss at the indoors to Texas All five losses were to teams that at some point this year, I believe, were ranked number one in the country, except for, I suppose, Baylor. And so, again, you take those five losses with a grain of salt still. From five and five to 23 matches in a row, obviously, they win their conference. They win their conference tournament. They win the national championship. And the way they go about winning that national championship, 4-1 win over Florida, a match I'm sure we're about to talk about here on this show, 5-0 over Tennessee, 4-0 in a match over Kentucky that, honest to God, might have ended up being 7-0. I mean, this team, by the end of the year in Champaign, were simply put better than everyone else they faced. And look, when you win a national championship, of course you seeded expectations. National championship is the highest aspiration anyone can seek to reach throughout the course of a college tennis season. But I want to start with you, John Parsons. 5-5 to 23 in a row to turn things around the way that they did, to, I think, as a number seven seed, be unequivocally the best team we saw in Champaign. You know, UVA now has, what, five total national championships in program history, 13, 15, 16, 17, now 22. Obviously, this is the first championship for head coach Andres Pedroso, who, you know, 
was a part of that 2013 run, was a part of getting this Virginia program to where they are today. But now he has done it with entirely Andreas Pedroso homegrown talent. There is no denying this is his program, that he has shaped it, moving in his uh, image is too strong, but he has shaped it in his, li- in his likeness moving forward. I mean, what a moment for this UVA team. Where do you stack it in terms of the turnarounds you've seen? Well, I, I turn around. Or just the impressive of, I mean, again, they ran the table down the home stretch. Yeah, I mean, they did that the previous year, right? In terms of the ACC regular season, the ACC tournament. You know, I think this was a, a team that felt young and they were young in 2021 with the three freshmen that year of Rodesh, von der Schulenberg and Montez. And then when they lost five straight matches, first time since 2003, all indoors, it, it felt like it was going to turn around. There were a few matches in there where they were a little banged up, but it it didn't feel like they were, you know, outside of that top five conversation, right? And so they go outdoors and they, you know, they they run the table. And I think you're right. I mean, by the end of the season, right? I mean, they play that Tennessee match could have been seven zero. The Kentucky match could have been seven zero. They were the best team in the country, I think, in large part due to. One, I think you now have a sophomore class of those trios who are who were ready for the NCAA season in a way that they were not when they were freshmen, right? You saw them kind of falter down the home stretch in 2021. You see someone like Bar Botzer who factors into the lineup who clearly was improving, you know, day after day, week after week to finally be in decent enough shape to win those matches uh at number six. So Credit to Coach Pedroso getting this done. Credit to the scheduling as well, going on the road for those matches, playing those tough matches, losing them, um, and ultimately, you know, the the cards were in their favor uh, in Champaign. I hate to make this a comparison between two schools. It was kind of the reverse Ohio State, to your point. Like, last year, Ohio State whipped up on everyone to start the season, and they did it all at home. You know, they beat Kentucky, they beat Virginia, they beat Tennessee, Wake, all at home. This Virginia team had indoors too. Yeah, had the exact opposite experience where they went on the road and they lost to TCU. They lost to Baylor. They lost to Ohio State. They had a really rough national indoor experience. But again, this team played its best tennis down the season's home stretch. And you know, for the last time, probably I will get to say this in my life. Shout out to me as it relates at least to Barbotzer because I remember a UVA preview podcast one year ago where a wise commentator, a wise podcast host insinuated that he expected Botzer to be playing lower in the lineup to the ridicule of two Chris Halioris and Matt Stokowiak's. That said, that's exactly what we saw from Bob Botzer down the season's home stretch. Again, the fact that he was able to play in the number six single spot, the fact that Gianni Ross was clicking as well as he had clicked since his freshman, sophomore season for the Who's last year. Getz took another step forward. And then the big thing, to your point, it's the core. We knew that trio of Rodash, Von der Schulenberg, Montez had the opportunity to be special Each was in their own way, Chris, in 2022. And again, I think we had them preseason number five or six last year, but I very distinctly remember saying, hey, like, they may be six, but we know this team, the best version of it, can win a national championship. And so, Chris, as you look back at their 2022 season, underperform, exceed expectations, or did they get things just right? 
Well, I mean, when you win the national championship, it's hard not to say you didn't exceed expectations yeah, sure. unless you were the prohibitive favorite coming in, which they weren't. So, so I'll say they exceeded expectations. And you know, the, the biggest the biggest thing that I remember really from early in that season last year is I remember we all, I mean, all of us that previewed indoors, basically said, "Man." They way, way undersold Virginia. Well, I don't even remember what they were. They were the 12 to TCU's 5, yeah. Yeah, they were a 12 seed, and we said, it's ridiculous. I don't care that they've lost three matches in a row coming in at Ohio State, at Baylor, and at TCU. They're not the number 12 team. They, We still, I, I, you, Maddie, and I still had them, I think, in our top five, if not top, I mean, top yeah. seven at worst. But I think they were still, like, fifth, maybe. But it could have been seventh. On our, you know, in our rankings at the time, no way did we see them coming in as a 12 seed. And I mean, obviously they showed exactly why. I mean, yeah, they went through a little a little rough three match road stretch there, uh, and and then obviously lost a couple matches at indoors. But after that, you know, lights out. See ya. Uh, it, it's but so I would say yeah. A to answer your question, absolutely they. They exceeded expectations because they won the national championship. And I don't think we expected them to win the national championship. Most of us had Florida as the prohibitive favorite going into the year. Yeah. And I mean, so let's get to that match next where Florida obviously taking on Virginia. That was one of the night match quarterfinals we had in Champaign. And, you know, watching that match unfold, certainly when uh, Virginia took the doubles point, you felt like, okay, something is going on here. But obviously there was the long weather delay that transpired in this match. And, you know, when we went into the break, Riffis, I believe, was up, what, 5-2 on Inyaki? In that first set, Shelton, Rodash were doing battle. Duarte had taken a 6-2 first set. Andrade, a 6-3 first set. You felt like, okay, maybe the big horses are going to bail Florida out of this one. But look, coming out of the rain delay, playing under the lights, Jay, it was all UVA. And when I think about performances that define the season, and we said it going into the NCAA tournament, the winner of UVA Virginia was going to be our favorite in Champaign. Well, to see Virginia win the doubles point the way they did and come out and, dare I say, just dominate Florida in that second half of that match, it was beyond impressive. It was the performance that defined the season. Yeah, it really was. I mean, they won the rain delay, and that probably won them the match, right? I think that they handled that rain delay better than Florida. You had Florida kind of roaming the indoors facilities during that point in time. I think Virginia stayed back in the locker room, and Virginia came out, you know, ready to do battle. And uh, ultimately, I think winning that Florida match is what, you know, gave them the belief that they were at that point rolling downhill when it came to the semifinals and the finals. I still feel strongly that whoever won that match in the quarterfinals probably does go on to win the national championship match. That was definitely um, UVA's toughest test, but incredibly impressive. I think you point exactly to Montez, right? Coming back at number two, beating Riffis in straight sets and then go on to have just the, you know, Herculean performance that he delivered uh, throughout the NCAA tournament, both in the team and the singles event that sort of encapsulated that, that run in Champagne for him to come back, beat Riffis that number two singles match. I don't think anyone put in the UVA column. And um, at that moment, I think the belief was there for Virginia to win the whole thing. 
it was beyond impressive. And look, when you look at any young core, of course you want to project special things. And when this young Virginia team went to the Ty Tucker Tennis Center, first kickoff weekend of 2021, and beat Ohio State, and then, you know, played really good tennis at the National Indoors, but then lose to an Illinois team without Kova on that final day, like... UVA did some really special stuff in 2021, and to see them lose to a more experienced USC team in Orlando in the round of 16, again, in retrospect, you're like, oh, like, that's exactly the loss they needed. And to, you know, take some lumps early in this season, this team had just, they were calloused up come the NCAA tournament. And then, you know, again, case in point, Iñaki Montez, 5-2 down. Not a worry in the world as he races his way back to ultimately earn that win. And then again, the win over Tennessee might have been even more impressive than the win over Kentucky. They just ended all of Tennessee's momentum. And then again, when it, once it, once they won that doubles point against Kentucky, you felt like you could pack the bag, start the plane. I also do want to give one last shout out. You know what exceeded my expectations? The UVA tailgate. I had heard rumors, I had heard legends of what the Pedrosa brothers were capable of, of UVA going hard out there and knowing what it takes as a crowd to help their team over the finish line. They were impressive. Like, they definitely, I'm not saying they won that match against Kentucky because UVA's guys on the court probably win that one no matter what, but the guys earned three and a half points and the crowd earned that last half point to ultimately propel them over the finish line, in my opinion. I was that impressed with that UVA atmosphere, but... Look, I mean, the best part if you're a UVA fan is you get to bring back the whole crowd. Like, yes, Gianni Ross, Andre Pedrosa's first recruit. I don't know if anyone had heard that. But, oh, yeah, if you read a single thing about their NCAA run, God, every question was. So tell me, Gianni, your first recruit clinching it for you. How was that? And I just, like, wanted Andres at some point to be like, wait, I recruited Gianni? Did you guys hear that? Like, I didn't know that. But, you know. Obviously, you look for this team. The key is they bring back the the core three. Chris Rodesh, Iñaki Montez, Jeffrey von der Schulenberg, all back on campus. We'll get to the rest of the returners momentarily. But, Jay, as we approach this new season, which of those super sophomores are you feeling most confident in? Oh, that's a tough question. You know, the person who really had, you know, a season we don't talk enough about is, you know, 19 and one Bonder Schulenberg at number three. I mean, he was, despite all of the, you know, trials and tribulations of the, that this team had, I mean, he maintained, maintained to be extremely steady at number three. I think um, you would look for Rodesh to take another big jump, given his weapons, given his size. I mean, this was someone who held his own at number one at each and every one of those matches. He split sets with Shelton, Walton, Draxel, right, was dead even with all of them. He beats August Holmgren, NCAA semi um, finalist in a 15K this summer that he wins. So, you know, and, and Montez is special, right? We saw what he did in team competition. So it's really tough to choose one ahead of the other. They all play their roles. Um, and that's the thing. They can all play anywhere in this lineup, and you feel really good about them. Chris, that was a cop-out from Jay. I'm not going to allow that from you. Give me your best of the top three. By the way, Jay laid out the argument for each of them pretty well. The fact that Rodash, who you look overall at what he was able to accomplish last season, 15-6, and six, playing exclusively in the one and two single spots, 9-3 and three at one. Uh, Montez goes 13-3 and three overall in dual match play, 4-3 and three at one, 9-0 and oh at two. And then to your point, Von der Schulenberg, 19-1 overall, 10-0 and oh when asked to play that number three single spot. They were all valuable in their own way. 
and I will answer the question. I think the jump you saw from Rodesh is probably the most valuable because I think we knew whoever was three out of those guys, they were going to put up some gaudy stats. And, you know, the fact that von der Schulenberg and Montez went a combined, what, 13-0 at two, 10-0 at three combined, like, that is remarkable. But we knew they were capable of that. For Rodesh to go 9-3 and three at one, for him to play Ben Shelton even in that NCAA quarterfinal, Chris, like that to me was the big jump is that not only were they all extraordinarily good, but they were also all good enough to be that number one singles guy and be very much in the mix as a top 10 player. You know, Rodesh was perhaps the most clear manifestation of that. So that's my pick. Who's yours? Yeah, are, are you saying your, your your pick for the the best of last year? Or the yeah, guy the that most, you think? I think the most valuable probably of the three last year. I mean, look, I, I'm I'm not gonna say von der Schulenberg just because no matter who plays three, that should be this. They should have it right. Those three are so good, and we've talked about this with other teams. Whether it's three, four, five deep, whoever ends up being, you know, how many guys you have that are basically throw them up in the air and play them in whatever position you got, and the one in the last spot gets, you know, they get the spot that you better win every week, and and von der Schulenberg did not no discredit to him at all he did what he needed to do but i don't think it would i would say that that was the most valuable i'll say yeah i'll, I'll say last year it it's it's rodesh the guy that i think that i'm looking forward more for the and he's got the bigger weapons obviously but i think the guy that's going to carry them if they're going to be able to do it again is going to be montez uh, that's the guy i look at that Rodesh has the game. They're going to play a fair amount of indoors. He's 6'6". He hits the ball huge. You expect big things out of him. Inyaki, I mean, how? first of all, coming from a 5'8 guy looking at Inyaki almost in the eyes, um, how can you not love seeing a guy who's not 6'3", 6'4", that can play? It doesn't matter. Indoors, outdoors, the fight that he's going to put up and probably beat you and has done it in pro tournaments uh, has shown that he can, you know, he can do it at the challenger level, wherever they just need that from him day in, day out. And if he's playing one, two for them again, I think that he's the key guy. If he can be their one, two and playing and winning, you know, 75 plus percent of, of his matches and allows, you know, Rodesh to do what he's going to do and von der Schulenberg to continue to do his thing at three, they're going to be very hard to beat. I mean, it's also worth noting Montez is the beating heart of that team. Just the energy, the the relentlessness you get from Inyaki. And, I mean, it helps that he's winning all of the time. But you know it's going to take at least three hours if you're doing battle and you want to knock off Inyaki Montez. And, you know, there's – yeah, it's funny. He's got 16 results in dual match play last year. You got to wonder how many of that was just because his other teammates had finished the match beforehand and they had already clinched things. And so he wasn't able to finish. Jay – I want to give you the final thought on these three sophomores because I saw, again, your face is telling a million words throughout the course of this <laughs> podcast today, Jay. Maybe that's why it's great that we have you here today. But uh, your th- thoughts on this, again, superstar trio that it's crazy to say, by the way, are now all upperclassmen. Yeah, but still also have two years left. Including yeah, this very year. true. Right. Um, oh, the face you probably saw me make is I feel like you changed the question, right? The question is most valuable players, unequivocally Montez, yeah. right? The run he went on of beating Riffis Monday, Diallo, Mock Monday, all in straight sets, and That's then Rodriguez. Crazy. I think we all knew he was hand in a glove in college tennis, but that level, 
I don't know if we saw that. So definitely the most valuable player. Um, I mean, look, all three of them, you look to just make continual jumps. I'm most interested now. We know now what Montez is capable of. I still think there's another level for Rodesh to hit um, where he could make a similar jump that we saw from Montez from year one to year two. This could be another jump from Rodesh from year two to year three. I do wonder if von der Schulenberg, the doc, of course, shout out to Matt Sikowiak for bringing back that nickname. I wonder if the doc is going to have some opportunities to play more at the number one and two spots this year because, God, is his game so fluid. Like, it's just so easy for him to absorb, redirect, pace. Maybe it's the fact they kind of look alike. But I see Cannon, like the Doc and Cannon Kingsley to me, I see in very similar lights and just like how foundationally solid they are off of both wings, how well I think both of them can turn up the pace when need be, but they might both still be a little bit more comfortable massaging that ball from the baseline. I just would like to see it because, again, I think Montez is one end of the extreme in the intensity and the relentlessness, obviously. I think he can take the ball early on the rise and is pretty quick twitchy as well. But the other end of the extreme is Rodesh, 6'6", six, 6'7". Six, six, the firepower is undeniable. The Doc's like right in between. And again, I think all three can work in those top three positions, regardless of where you put them. You get why indoors, certainly. And just in general, with the weapons he has, you want Rodesh at that number one spot. And look, who's went 16-6 and six at one, 20-4 at two, 18-4 at three, a lot went right for these sophomores throughout the course of the year, and you feel like wherever you play them now as juniors, as upperclassmen, they can continue. You know, again, it feels like it's like 16-6, and 20-4, and 18-4 feel very replicable as top three numbers for the Who's might be the best way to say it moving forward. But look, it's not just there that they bring in the returners. And next, we should talk about a guy in Ryan Getz, 20-5 and five overall in dual match play last year, 10-1 and one at the number four single spot. I mean, how heavy he hits that forehand, his ability to whip that backhand. It's steady Eddie at that number four singles position. And again, he was able to get some very good, you know, lost the match to Andrade, but really picked up his level from there in the semifinals, in the finals. And I mean, again, all of these players have at least two years of experience as you look at this top four. And, you know, Chris, I'll go to you here next. I think Getz could fill in in a top three in a pinch as well, especially with another year of experience. I think he has the weapons to do it. The fact that you play him at number four singles again this season, I'm feeling really good about Virginia, If I, uh, about having Ryan Getz if I'm the University of Virginia. Well, absolutely. A guy you've had for for multiple years there. I, this is probably his fourth year now, right? I, I I mm-hmm. think uh, he, well, maybe even fifth. Might be a, a fifth, even. I was going to say. Yeah, it might be a fifth. Yeah, I remember him playing uh, Nick Braun from Mississippi State way back in the day at, at All Americans. But uh, yeah, he's been around for a while. You, there's certainly no qualms about him. He could fill in in a pinch in the top three. If you want to be a national championship title contender, do, you, do I really want it in my best version of a Virginia team? Is he in the top three? No. But if one of those guys goes down, do I feel bad that I have to play him there? No. Uh, nor do I feel bad that, you know, then I probably have to slide bar if we're if we're still going with the Gruskin bar at five, which I would assume we are. Yeah. Uh, and that is, you know, on the over under of how many uh, number of minuscule matches you're going to predict that he plays this year. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. I do. I 
do I feel bad playing bar at four? Absolutely not. I mean, we're talking about a guy that played one, two for Wake, right? So, so no, at the top, I mean, the top five, zero qualms about anybody in that lineup in any of those spots. Well, that's what it really is, isn't it, Jay? It's a core five and gets 20 and five. But then, you know, you have Barbatzer who 12 and seven overall last year. The big thing, he went six and one in his last 10 matches. And I've shared this anecdote before was 15 pounds lighter at NCAAs than he was at the national indoors. It was just a different Barbatzer at the end of the year as if to say, hey, Bar, we need you to turn it on. Like, it's go time. And he was there, able to do it. Of course, Botzer, to Chris's point, clinched the national championship at number four singles for Wake Forest back in 2018. Was, you know, un- essentially undefeated in a top three spot uh, for them throughout the course of that 2019 season. And obviously, by the end of the year, was clicking on all cylinders. Singles and doubles felt like we got the best version of Botzer. Again, in those four and five spots, Jay, it's a year later. I do wonder, Barbots are 19 total dual match decisions last year. God, what is that number going to look at this season in terms of how many decisions he ultimately ends up playing? You know, is it, I'll, I'll go with the uh, the Scotty number. Is it that eight and a half number outside of the big tournaments, national indoors, NCAAs, we see out of bar if I say over under there? I mean, again, it's a very solid core five. Like the best version of Virginia has to have this core five playing. I just don't know how frequently we'll see it throughout the course of the season. Well, what else is Botzer doing? He's in his second semester of his second year of MBA. I mean, people are just enjoying free time and parties before they head back to the real world. So might as well play a little tennis by all accounts. I think he is playing tennis. I think he's in the gym. So I think we do see uh, Botzer play maybe more frequently this year, particularly when you look at Virginia's depth that might not be what they had last year. So, you know, look, he has rings from two different schools. I'm not sure we've seen that many times in college tennis. So um, why not get a third? Look, I think he will play a huge factor in this lineup. And again, he's not being asked to play one, two, or three. I think he can find ways to get the job done, even in the regular season this year, uh, which was a taller task last season. Yeah, I... Look, I mean, regardless of where you play, honestly, any of these players in this top five, you feel like all of them in a pinch can fill in in any spot of the lineup. Certainly, you feel like given where they're at in their career trajectories, you would want the rising juniors, the rising third years, as they call them at Virginia, in those top three spots. But again, Getz has earned the benefit of the doubt. Uh, for a decade now, Barbotzer has earned the benefit of the doubt here in college tennis. And again, you feel like the less you need Bar, the better that seems to indicate this team has gone. Uh, better things have gone for this team throughout the course of the year. And I mean, look, the single biggest question that Virginia enters the season with is who's their six? Who's going to fill in the gap in that number uh, in that spot left by Gianni Ross of Custer Ross? Twenty-two and two. Throughout the course of last year in dual match play, won his last 12 decisions, 9-0 and in his last 10 matches. Obviously clinches the national championship, a beautiful ending, a beautiful moment of poetry, I suppose, in the career of Gianni Ross. But Pedroso's look, Ross, first recruit. Absolutely. I don't know if people had heard that. Um, but you look really? for, yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, you look for this UVA team. 
you know, that's the question. Is this number six guy going to come from the bench? Is it going to come from one of the newer options? Let's look at the returners first. Obviously, they bring back junior Alex Kiefer. Kiefer uh, was able to play seven dual matches last year, went four and three overall, two and three at the number six spot, though did win his last two decisions. The other option, I suppose that they could also turn from in a pinch, Will Woodall, who has done more sing- uh, doubles than singles play throughout the course of his career. But hey, you put a fifth year at six singles. You don't hate your chances on any given day. Let's start with one of those two returners, and I turn to you here, Jay. Either of them feel like they have the inside track, or would you turn to one of the freshmen? Well, I would probably turn to one of the freshmen, but uh, you know, I think Kiefer is first in line, right? He's been kind of first man out here for a few years. He's gotten his chances um, in, in some dual matches, so he certainly has the the inside shot as the returner who is familiar with the Virginia system, trademark NC State, um, but understands kind of what it takes to be successful at this Virginia program. So, look, it's going to he's going to have to earn that spot um, and he's going to have to compete against a, a new addition there. But he has the experience um, and the familiarity of what it takes to be uh, number six guy. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s-inspired style and cutting-edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high-energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Yeah, I think that's well said. You know, Coach Pedroso has constantly praised Kiefer over the years, and you do wonder keeping Kiefer on campus. I mean, there's advantages to just being a student at UVA, no doubt about that. But you imagine he sticks around and looks at this year as the major opportunity for him to become the contributor he believes he can be for this team. Meanwhile, and I say this affectionately about Will Woodall, he's fine on the bench in singles. Like, he's not going to be slighted one way or the other if he is playing, if he isn't playing. The energy he brought, I think— also essential to the run we saw from this UVA team last year. Chris, I guess this is how we can use to transition to the new additions. Do you expect it to be Alex Kiefer, or is there a new addition on this roster that just you think has to be considered right away for this spot? Yeah, I think there's like a 1% chance it's not Kiefer. He's playing six, okay? But yeah, Dahlberg is an is an option. I but I But it's, again, this is a... Hey, he hasn't even played in college yet. You're not going to go bring a guy in that maybe he's Kiefer's level, maybe he's not, and you haven't seen him play college and play him day one? No chance. Kiefer six day one. Dahlberg can come in and get his opportunity to prove it. I'm with you on the Woodall thing, right? Woodall will play doubles. Woodall will be, he will be the team, you know, he's going to be the team cheer guy. You know, much like we had, uh, you know, Dickey at, at Baylor and and contribute where he can. But he's not expecting to be a major contributor in the singles lineup. And he's OK with it. And and I think that's what it is. I, we we will see Kiefer playing six when the rest of the team is playing, which includes Barr. And I will say I totally agree with Jay because of the lack of depth this year for this team being if you play Kiefer six, You've kind of got Dahlberg seven. And then after that, it's some freshmen and Woodall. And in matches that are, you know, potential, you know, tragedy matches that could jump up and bite you if you lose, they're going to play the A team. 
I think Botzer plays more this year than he did last because of that, because they're going to be a lot of treacherous matches. They play some fairly decent non-conference matches. Then they get into, you know, a conference schedule where there are very few teams in the ACC where, you know, there are a couple, but not very many where you're going to feel very good about sitting more than a guy and shout out to the Virginia people who've listed Harvard as an ACC school on the schedule. But uh, beyond that, yeah, it's a tough, it's, it's not an easy schedule. Three freshmen on this roster, no new additions via the transfer portal, but you've got freshman Douglas Yaffa out of New York. You've got Tyler Switzer out of New York, and then you've got Mons Dahlberg out of Sweden. Jay, tell me a little bit more about these guys. Maybe for the last time, how does this universal tennis, uh, how do their UTRs stack up for this Virginia team? Well, Dahlberg is an interesting case, right? He's a top 15 junior in the world, um, and he really hasn't played since September of 2021. Shout out to Universal Tennis, because unlike the ITF website, he has actually... For now, for now, but carry on. Unlike the ITF net website for now. Sure. Well, I don't I'm just know doing this to ITF give you a hard time. Yeah, carry I don't know. On. Okay. There's like he's played two Swedish events that are shown in you know the Universal Tennis um, listing. So look, you don't bring in a top 15 junior in the world and not expect him to be a major contributor to the lineup. The question is just how early and soon can he contribute, having not played competitively for you know close to a year and a half. So um, he is certainly the one that they will be you know, preparing for entering into the lineup, getting the most chances of those freshmen. I don't think we will see um, Switzer and Yaffa in as many dual matches, certainly in the ones that they feel have high confidence in. Um, But yeah, in terms of the like power six, Virginia is an 80.77. So that is, where do you think it is, Gruskin? It's got to rank like fourth. Sixth. Can't be that high. Yeah. Sixth? Sixth. Oh, six, you say, as if it's so different, Chris. (laughs) You bite your freaking tongue. Um, I mean, look, you're right. Dahlberg's the fascinating one on paper, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, And And, and it could be, you know, frankly, to Jay's point, it's – it could be very similar to another Rodesh situation, right? When Rodesh came in as a freshman, not a lot of history behind him in his case because he was coming off injuries and just didn't have a lot of history and was really, you know, under the radar for people that do a lot of on paper looking. And you go look at UTR, like Jay said, you go look at UTR and Dahlberg's got two tournaments in there and he and he's a 12-8 or whatever he is, right? Could the guy, could he be, on? you know, is he another Rodesh that just hasn't played and he's really a 13-6 and just hasn't had the chance to prove it recently because he hasn't played a lot? We don't know. Yeah, I think that's very well said. Jake, final thoughts on this roster? Are you ready to guess a lineup for me? Yeah, I was just going to say that Switzer, Woodall, and Yaffa are kind of under that, that 12-0 UTR mark. Um, Woodall, we know, has contributed before, so... Um, yeah, we'll see. I do think uh, Dahlberg, they will look to get him. If he's factoring into the lineup, um, this is the better better version, I think, of the UVA team come May. Yeah, uh, it's a fascinating group. And, you know, again, I think we know five guys that will be contributing. Certainly, it'll be some order of Rodesh, Montez, von der Schulenberg, Botzer gets someone else. Chris, what what lineup order do you see? Give me the, give me the pieces. Who fits where? 
Yeah, this is one of the easier ones. I think we have a lot of these where we throw them up in the air. Like, you know, last we talked about Ohio State after one, it was a toss up. I don't think there's a lot of debate here until you get to six. I think you're going, uh, you know, Rodesh one, Montez two, Vonder Schulenberg three, Getz four, Botzer five. And then the question at six, I I certainly believe we start the year with Kiefer six and we see what Dahlberg's got when he starts playing and maybe he's in the lineup and he could be higher than six when he's in the lineup. But I think that's the, that's the starting lineup. Uh, and only Dahlberg really outside of that lineup has the chance to crack it. Yeah. Uh, Jay, you're shaking your head for the first time today in agreement. <laughs> I do some subtle nods, but yeah, yeah. no, uh, I'm, I'm in full agreement of that. Um, well said. See, I think Doc gets more shots at one this year. I really do. I think well, shots is different than what are we projecting for May? Well, no. So again, that's where things get interesting because you can't Ooh. take Montez out of his top two spot. And I just think Montez is a staple of the top two is exceptional. I really like Jeffrey's game though. Uh, I'm going to go Rodash one, Doc two, Montez three. I'm going to stick with it. I think this is the year Jeffrey's totality of things allow him to surpass Inyaki in the lineup. But again, go look at the pro results. Inyaki's been killing it. Challenger level, future level. All these guys have been killing it, Rodesh included. I just think you have to keep the weapons of Rodesh at one. And that's why I'm a little bit more imp- uh, inclined to keep him at the top of the lineup than, else, uh, than otherwise. I'll go Gats four. I'll go bots or five. I'll go Dahlberg six. I don't feel great about it. I think there will be a rotating cast of characters. I'll ask you both over under eight and a half bar bots or non NCAA, non national indoor matches. You take the over or the under, Jay. I go over. Chris? No doubt I'm over. Wow. Yeah, I'll take the over too. It's it's finally his final year. Let's have some fun with it, there you bar go. Final yeah. hurrah. Yeah, exactly. You've earned the right to to play around, although, you know, Looking at this team's schedule and you are looking at this team's roster, excuse me, and you guys have alluded to it. Chris, are they a guy thin? Are they? Is that your biggest concern for them? What, no. What's the weakness for this U.S.? Yeah, absolutely. It's it's a core five, and I just don't know about six, and that's that's the weakness, right? We've still got them number one, but I feel a hell of a lot better about the depth on the Ohio State roster than I do on this roster. But I feel a hell of a lot better about the top the experience at the top of this roster, not just in saying number one and comparing, say, to Cannon Kingsley, but one, two, three, where in a team like Ohio State that we had at two, we're not even sure who the heck two and three is. Uh, that that is that is the fear. And I'll say on the botzer front that my other fear is that if, and I don't think he will, but if he were to choose to sort of play this year like last year, where he can, you know, put on the professor 15 before the NCAA and then take them off and go on a roll that that could lead to trouble with as thin as this lineup is. Let's say that one of those top three guys does get hurt and goes down during the year. Now you need bots or not only do you need bots, you need an in form in shape bots are in the lineup every day. He's got to be able to do it. They can't really afford to say, yeah, whatever, Bar, you can still take off till May and we're good. I, that won't be the case. So he's going to need to be ready to go. Even if he doesn't play, he's got to be in shape and in form and ready to play. 
Yeah, I, I think that's well said. Uh, same question to you, though, Jay. What are your biggest concerns? See, you know, when I think of this team, it reminds me of, like, Kentucky had Diallo come back, where you'd be like, we know five, and we like those five so much, the uncertainty at six doesn't really matter. And that is the synopsis of where we are with this UVA team. Again, this five core they bring back proved they were good enough to win a freaking NCAA championship last season. That said, what's your scale of concern, and is there anything we've missed as you look at this UVA team and what may hold them back this year? No, we've talked about it, right? It's who's the, who's playing six, and likely who plays six needs to fill in for Johnny Ross and doubles as well. They probably have two solid teams in Rodesh and Botzer and Getz and Yaki, and, and who do they pair the dock with? Uh, that's really the main question, but even these other teams that are deeper, right, and have a on paper, a better six or a better seven, you might not feel as good about one through five. And even if you feel better about them in certain positions, there's still questions that surround those teams. Like, you know, even like a, a big now we haven't seen in college for over a year. Is Ianni coming back? Like all these other teams is, does Croider stay the Croider of the fall? Like you just don't have those questions about these five players who we've seen now for multiple years perform at a consistent level. So, Look, I mean, there's not much to uh, not like about this team other than they're a little thin. Yeah, I mean, even in doubles last year, this team was able to figure out their pairings by the end of the season. Obviously, again, win doubles points against Florida, against Tennessee, against Kentucky at that NCAA uh, during that NCAA tournament run. I will say, from a schedule perspective, this team will not be as calloused up this year as they were last season, and they just don't have that four-match run of, you know, that they did throughout the course of last year. Now, the non-conference schedule is still solid. You know, they've got a matchup with Baylor coming to Charlottesville before ITA kickoff weekend. It's actually a pretty fun kickoff weekend with Virginia, Ole Miss, Princeton, and Nevada all in the region. Now, again, UVA should cruise through that region, but it's a fun foursome, no doubt about that. After that, they get Kentucky at home. They get Ohio State at home. National Indoors weekend where you expect they'll get three if not four good matches in Chicago. After that, it's just the ACC play. And for what it's worth, they're tough ACC trips this year at NC State, at Wake Forest. That's a really frisky first weekend of April. They've got that Harvard match thrown in uh, in Cambridge at the end of March as well. But like, Okay, you get you get Duke, North Carolina at home. You're at Wake at NC State, but then you know Baylor's coming to town. Ohio State's coming to town. You have the national indoors. You don't have the Florida trip. It's not a bad schedule by any stretch of the imagination. It's still a, a solid schedule. But I like teams getting tested on the road. And like again, I know they'll have their ACC play. Yes, they'll have the four matches at the ITA uh, indoors, three or four, excuse me. But like Chris. I don't think this is a, you know, if I was ranking the schedules we've done in our top 10 preview, this way, I don't think this would be a top five. No, absolutely not. Like you said, the, the, the tougher non-conference, you know, matches are at home and outside of the fact that, you know, the aforementioned Harvard ACC match on the road, uh, outside of that, the toughest road matches at my flames, yeah. uh, yeah, I. It's not. It's not, not a tough. Not a tough road schedule. Yeah, I. I. I, I mean, again, Jay. We're we're just gonna call it Jay Face. We're getting a serious case of it from you, Jay. Why do you disagree? Well, I, I mean, this is the inverse of last season's schedule, right? With sure. the exception of TCU. That's it. 
same exact schedule. Baylor, Kentucky, Ohio State played all of them on the road last year. Cards are in their favor of ha- having a mix each year. So they're at home this year. I, you know, you sign these home and homes for a two-year contract or an agreement. Like, yeah, I, I personally would have loved to see th- sprinkling in a trip to UCF at Orlando sure. just to get some more experience down there, uh, particularly given that, you know, while this team has experience in Orlando, like it hasn't been kind to them, right? They've had struggles in both 2019 and in 2021, but I don't really have any concerns with the schedule. Yeah, probably not a top five, just given that it's at home, but like it's kind of how the cards were dealt where last season was brutal because they're all on, on the road this season. You get them at home. No, it's a good schedule. Again, I just, it's not the elite schedule, I suppose, that we saw last season and, you know, again, there's some really good schedules if you look at some who some of these teams are matching up with throughout the course of the country. That said, they're still going to get tested. Like, again, Baylor, Ohio State, national team indoors. We all anticipate Harvard's going to be really good this year. Uh, it's a fun schedule. It's going to be enjoyable, certainly, to watch the Who's compete. With that said, for the final time this year, gentlemen, we can get into our predictions. I will start with you, John J. Parsons. This Virginia team. National indoors win loss. How do you see them faring after what was a disastrous one and two event last year? Yeah, I, I'm gonna like modulate my predictions here. I don't think they win indoors. Okay. Um, I think there are other teams who are, let's call it, indoor teams. Uh, there okay. are a few play- players on on this roster who you like a lot better outdoors. I mean, look, you saw that all those losses came indoors last year, um, didn't lose a match outdoors. So, no, I, I won't say they win indoors. Feels like a semifinal or final performance. Chris? Yeah, I've already said I, I, I'm I'm going to take Ohio State to win indoors. Uh, I don't think these guys win indoors, but I think I think finals uh, for them. I, I could see an Ohio State-Virginia final. Fun fact, 2019 National Indoors, USC was playing UVA in a random backdrop match. They were on the back courts, but like that was the first National Indoors I had ever attended. And I was like, guys, why is there not 20,000 people watching UVA Virginia? Like, isn't that the rule? Anytime these two programs play, even if it's a backdrop match that we're all forced to watch it. And sadly, no one else came and watched them on the back courts with me. Um... I do still get a little thrill when I see the Virginia team walk in. I just because you had to look it. through that god awful screen. Yeah, on exactly. Well, twelve year <laughs> it's just like twelve year old being watched the Virginia team walk in, and I still get a little excited. Um, yeah, I agree. I think someone else wins the national indoors. There are just too many really experienced teams that are going to be really hungry coming out of the gates, and I think this Virginia team will be better prepared to pace themselves. Do they run another undefeated ACC gauntlet, Jay? Third straight year? Do you expect this team to have some sort of gaudy win-loss ratio entering the NCAA tournament? Probably. I mean, they've done it the past few years. I think there's also a massive jam at the like tied for number two in the ACC right now. I think you have UVA um, a class above, and then there's just Duke, UNC, NC State, Florida State, Wake, somewhere in there. But I think UVA is a class above. Florida State's that wild card, right? The difference is UVA gets that match at home. Chris, they're going to go undefeated again post-indoors? I, I mean, I'm going to have to say no. I don't know who's going to beat them, but but to Jay's uh, point. I see what you do there. Who's going to beat the who's? Yeah, who's going to – no, there are there's, – there's so – I think the level in the ACC is act, you know behind them. There's, as Jay said, and I totally agree, they are a class above. It's, it's Virginia and then everybody else. 
but that there's a bigger group of tier two teams that I think, you know, it's kind of, it's kind of the, uh, do you bet on one or do you bet the field? And the odds are always going to be in the field's favor if the field's, you know, decent enough. I think somebody manages to jump up and surprise them. I don't know who that is. I won't say they're going to go undefeated post indoors. Somebody will jump up and surprise them. Uh, you know, an at NC state match could be, could be really dangerous. They do get Duke at home. They get North Carolina at home. To your point, they get Florida state at home. That, Boy, that makes it really tough for them to lose a match. So it, it might be tough to lose one. But, yeah, who knows? Between injuries and just the fact that on any given day someone could do it, I'll say there's one in there, but I don't. I can't imagine them losing more than a match. Yeah, I think that's well said. Well, then with that in mind, I think we all see them as top eight seeds. John Parsons, does this Virginia team repeat as champions? Look, I, I I think they do. I just this is the, the team that I have the least amount of questions about going into this season, and you just have to back a top five that just won an NCAA title together, right? And you figure out six. You know, I mentioned Orlando hasn't been kind to UVA. That's sort of like the the open question a little bit. But look, if I was a betting man, uh, which I am not, uh, I would have to go with with UVA. Chris. No, I, there's no way I can take back. To, I mean, just it's so hard to, to win back to back. And there are there are so many teams at the same level this year. If they were the prohibitive favorite, I I would be inclined to say yes, but but they're not. So I, I'm going to say no. Somebody else is, is going to win. I'm going to agree with Jay. I think this team wins it. I just again, it's one thing if you bring back like one or two pieces from a national championship core. This team brings back five. And like this group, Montez, Von der Schulenberg, Rodash, we said the moment they walked in, that's the sort of core that competes for a national championship. Now, again, Texas has a really good core that's experienced as well. We haven't seen them as healthy as this Virginia team has been the last two seasons, let alone what we saw from Virginia last year. We say, you know, again, TCU core has been around a bunch as well. I still think we have some questions about the bottom of their lineup in ways we don't with Virginia. This team's just been around the block. They've got options everywhere. They're a team that has, each of the past two years, gotten better from the start of the year to the end of the season. And I can't, I don't think you can put a price tag on how valuable that is. The fact that you just feel like by the end of the year, their six singles guy will be ready. They have options to prevent burnout at the top of their lineup as well. And, you know, again, this team is going from hunter to hunted. They're not going to be catching anyone off guard anymore. I think they're ready for that. I think they're prepared. I think in Florida State, Duke, Wake, UNC, you get some really good ACC play throughout the course of conference play as well so that they will be tested come Orlando. (sighs) That Ohio State match in Charlottesville is everything because if they win that match, now they're definitely going to be a top four seed. You know, if they don't win that match, now, you you know, again, to come through as the seventh seed again, they had a gauntlet, murderer's row. In You play Florida, you play last year's semifinalist and the most experienced team maybe left at that point in Tennessee, and then you play the red-hot Kentucky, and they wiped them all. And just like, I can't get that image out of my head. And so I'm going to go UVA to win the title, but again, there's a long list of teams who are those tier one contenders. With that said, before we go, John Parsons, any predictions you'd like to alter 
from the course of the past five weeks. This is your moment to do so. Men's or women's, the floor is yours. All right, final, going on the record. Here are my predictions. We can just cut this clip. So my champion is still on the women's side. We'll start there. My champion is still NC State. My finalist is North Carolina. I am changing my semifinalists. Mm. Uh, I am going with Pepperdine and Texas. Mm. So the the addition of Anna Campania, seeing Nikki Redlick playing, that helped Pepperdine semifinalists. Rounding out my quarterfinalists are Oklahoma, Texas A&M, Stanford, and Georgia. Both of these predictions are with Schneider playing and Vekic playing for Georgia. I love that. What about men's side? Any other juice for us? So men, I just said Virginia is my champion. I have Texas in the finals. I have uh, Michigan in the semifinals. And I have Georgia in the semifinals as well. Quarterfinals, I have Ohio State, USC, TCU, and Kentucky. I do not have Tennessee or Stanford in the quarterfinals. That's what I like to hear. Chris Helioris, same question to you. All right, I was just recording Jays there, so we'll have all these to look back on. I actually like the Georgia. I'm the SEC guy, so of course I like the Georgia pick. But I didn't go with it. I did do some revisions. I don't know how much is revised because I don't have a freaking clue what I've said in the past. Grusty. Hilarious. Yeah, So, but I'm going to stick with what I knew I said. And what I know I said, unbelievable and unbeknownst to both of us, is that two Big Ten teams would be in the final and that I would take (laughs) Michigan to win over Ohio State as the runner-up. I'm going to stick with it. I I don't know why. don't know how that will ever happen. They probably both lose because they're indoor teams, whatever. This is the year. I'm telling you, this is the year. Uh, My semifinalists, I will take Virginia and Texas in the semis. My quarterfinalists, Tennessee, TCU, Kentucky, and USC, which means I am leaving out Stanford and Georgia. All right. Wow. That's what I like to hear. I'm not going on record because I'm going to be calling all these things, and I don't want to get in trouble. So, folks, you can listen back to our predictions if you want to hear mine. Um, But I, I feel too nervous. I'll give you mine off. No, I've said it. I have Virginia over Michigan on the men's side in the final. Um, my semifinalists are Ohio State, Texas. Uh, my quarterfinalists, I believe, are, and I don't want to get this incorrect, my quarterfinalists are USC, Tennessee, TCU. <sighs> you're I'll throw to, Florida State in there. You you're know down what? To Stanford, have, Kentucky, Georgia, and you're going to go Florida State. I'm going to go Florida State. Let's be All creative right. here. Let's have some fun on the men's side. All right. On the women's side, UNC champs, NC State finalists. Duke and Oklahoma semis. Yeah, I'm sticking with my predictions. Texas, UGA, Stanford, Pepperdine, all my quarterfinalists. I feel pretty good about that women's side. Uh, so I'm locking in all of those. But So no folks, Texas A&M? Oh, fiddlesticks. Um, uh, look. Oh, Jay. <laughs> <laughs> now, now who's gone? Georgia out. A&M in for the women's top t- uh, for the women's quarterfinals. So, so you've got Duke in the semis, who Jay has left out completely. Yeah, I'm bold. Jay's okay. boring. So uh, Georgia's out, and you've got A&M in the quarters. No, you know what? No, I was going to say Texas is out, but I'm not pulling that trigger. Yeah, Georgia's <laughs> out. We're going with A&M in the quarters. But all right, man, I got it all written down. The women's side is way harder because just like that bunching of teams. 
I, they're all so good. Yeah, I'm just now realizing I left out Duke. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> who, I, who I had in, in the semifinal during yeah. our... Um, <laughs> During our, our we'll stick with it. Look, these are the, these are the, the final rankings. Yeah, crap. Um, yeah, just leave it in. Leave it all in, West Off. There we go. Those are the predictions. That is your preview of our men's and women's Division One top ten teams entering the 2023 season. Well, a couple of shout outs before we go. The biggest of shout outs to our super producer Daniel West Off for the f- of an editing job he does day in day out, making all of this content possible. Just we wouldn't be able to do these preseason countdowns without his tireless work. So shout out as always to West Off. Shout out to the two of you. Seriously, John Parsons, Chris Halliors, who tolerate more of my nonsense than literally any other humans in the world. I was not joking around earlier when I said I was half an hour late to today's show. Again, legitimately because I fell asleep unintentionally and. Yeah, that that happens too frequently here on these podcasts. So shout out to the both of you for your tolerance of my nonsense and, of course, for your effort in helping to preview all things related to the college tennis world. With that said, folks, it's time. 2023 College Tennis. Let's get things started. Of course, we will be back each and every week. Are we going to start next week? Are we ready for the deciding point on Tuesdays and Thursdays? It feels like we should be starting next week since matches are getting going this weekend. All right. I don't know if what, what our dates are. So I don't know if we're doing Tuesday, Wednesday, Wednesday Tuesday, Thursday, because we're going to ha- I think we're doing Tuesday, Wednesday, because our SEC stuff's going to start on Thursday, Friday, as we get closer to the start of the SEC conference play. And I just think it's going to be easier. For, I mean... We might kill West off in 2023. <laughs> I'm like very, very. That's concerned. the goal. Yeah. <laughs> you bite your tongue, Chris. I'll tell you what, in the needs to get killed order at Cracked Rackets, you are far higher in the queue. Um, but yeah, with that said. Yeah. Wait, where's Jay? Oh, it in goes, between. No, 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 no. It goes Dalton needs to be murdered first. Chris is a very close second. I'm probably a very close third. Um, big gap. Jay, fourth, Matt, fifth, Westoff, sixth. Um, with all of that said, uh, for the fantastic John J. Parsons, the professor, Chris Halliors, our super producer, Daniel Westoff, and all of us here at both Cracked Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. Gentlemen, for the last time this preseason, what do we tell our listeners? Hey. Great, great shot. shot. And we will see you all for the start of the 2023 college tennis season. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, everyone.